War is hell. I know that sounds cliche, but there's a simple, irrefutable truth in that short yet powerful statement, one that is unchanging through time. Although our modern weapons may not be the same now as they were in the past, in the end, the result is the same. Death, dismemberment, chaos, pain, grieving families, survivor guilt, and sometimes an elation that borders on the euphoric. For tribes like the Shoshone, Cheyenne, Blackfeet, and Crow, War was an unfortunate yet necessary part of life, and for centuries untold, these tribes clashed in skirmishes long forgotten on battlegrounds that no longer carry names, and the warriors who emerged victorious are likewise lost to history. Well, on today's episode, we'll take a glimpse behind the curtain, find out what it was like to accompany the Shoshone into battle, to hear the cries of victory mixed with the agonizing wells of mourning. By the way, my name's Josh, you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza, And this is the fourth installment of William T. Hamilton's My 60 Years on the Plains, chapters 7 and 8 if you're reading along at home. The Shoshones expected to remain in this camp for several days to give their women an opportunity to finish dressing robes and drying meat. The grass was good, timber was plentiful, and a few buffalo were on the prairie. To supply the camp with fresh meat and to scout for war parties would keep the young men busy. So was Shockey said. In the meantime, the Indians were having a joyous time dancing over Blackfeet scalps. I passed the time in visiting all the lodges and studying the habits and customs. I was becoming interested and had a desire to learn everything pertaining to Shoshone's so that I could ascertain the difference between them and other tribes that I might come in contact with. The scouts kept reporting fresh Indian tracks, but no Indians. This brought about a council between the Shoshones and our own party for the purpose of devising some plan to rid this section of war parties. We had more than a passing interest in accomplishing this. Not that we feared the war parties, but we wanted to collect furs without being constantly annoyed. Williams was the leading spirit in the council. After much deliberation, it was decided to form three parties of 25 each, who should operate in conjunction, some of our party to be in each of the three. By daylight of the following morning, all were ready, and we silently left the village taking the routes selected. Our company of Shoshones, including Williams, went to Bull Lake, as it was a favorite place for war parties. Indian tradition had it that the father of all buffaloes roamed around this lake. From the high knolls surrounding the water, one could sweep the country for miles with the aid of a spyglass, and could readily discover any Indian village or trapping outfit. When we reached Bull Lake Creek, where it forms a junction with Big Wind River, we saw fresh pony tracks coming from the east side of Big Wind River and going up the creek. It was impossible to tell the number as they traveled in single file. Every foot of this section was known to the Shoshones, which was of great advantage. We went up the creek about three-quarters of a mile when the country became rough. Three of the young men now dismounted, stripped, and went on ahead to scout, we holding the horses. When we received a signal from the scouts, we would advance to the point explored. It was just about this time that we heard shots from the east side of Wind River, and we felt certain that one of our parties had come into contact with the hostiles. Our scouts approached a high-timbered knoll and discovered a band of Indians running towards a high ridge, looking in the direction from which we had heard the shots. Our scouts returned on a run and mounted. Moonhavy, a noted chief and warrior, took the lead, keeping under cover so as not to be observed by the Indians on the ridge. We continued on for a half a mile and came to a crooked draw which headed up on the ridge. 
The chief wheeled and went up this draw for a quarter of a mile and halted. Just ahead was a sharp bend, which when passed would bring us in full view of the Indians on the ridge. The Shoshone stripped a breech clouts in short order and mounted their runners. Moonhavy gave the signal for a charge and dashed around the curve. Within 200 yards were 14 head of ponies under the care of two young men. They gave a warning cry to their comrades on the ridge, who fired several shots without effect as the range was too great. With a furious yell, the Shoshones charged on the two men, who tried their best to mount but were soon on their way to their happy hunting grounds. The Indians on the ridge, seeing the two men fall, disappeared. Our party divided, one going to the right and the other to the left, until about 300 yards apart, when both parties started up the ridge. And upon reaching the top, we saw the Indians about one quarter of a mile distant, making for Wind River where cottonwood groves were visible. Once there, they would be able to stand us off for some time and more than likely kill some of us. The country was comparatively level to the river, with the exception of two steep draws, which we crossed at a run. If the war party had used good judgment, they would have taken possession of some of these draws, but their minds must have been set on the timber in the river. The war party next scattered, which was another blunder, as they must have realized that they could not reach the timber and that we outnumbered them two to one. They should have remained together and taken possession of some buffalo waller, for there were plenty of these around. I failed to see the wonderful strategy with which Indians are credited. I had a quick eye and I observed every move of both parties. When the Indians scattered, they were about 250 yards ahead. And if the scene that followed could have been reproduced on canvas, it would have been worth a fortune. It was a scene that occurs only in actual warfare. The Shoshones gave yell after yell, charging madly and almost recklessly. The chief warned them to be careful, but they paid no attention to him. For in a case like this, it is a great feat to take the first scalp, and the successful warrior is greatly praised in their village. His lady love guys the other girls, claiming her lover as the bravest of the brave, first among their enemies. I believe the same rule exists among the pale-faced girls when a lover has performed a heroic act. The war party dropped blankets and war sacks, which contained tobacco, pipes, moccasins, and other things, thinking that the Shoshones would stop and pick them up. But the Shoshones charged on, redoubling their yells. It was a wild scene for a few moments, shots and arrows flying in every direction. Williams, Moonhavy, and myself had the fleetest horses and reached the Indians first. Williams killed the first Indian, while Moonhavy and I both fired at the same time, and both missed, which chagrined me greatly. I dashed after a tall Indian who had his arrow strung, passing him at a run. We both fired at the same time, his arrow lodging in the fleshy part of my horse's shoulder, which would have ruined him if the arrow had been forced behind it. But the Indian was scared. My shot knocked him down, and I heard Williams yell out, Well done, boy! There were only three left, and they were having a combat with a few young Shoshones who were doing poor execution. Some older men stepped in and put a hiatus to any further fighting by sending the three to join their companions in the happy hunting grounds. After lifting hair and collecting plunder, we returned to where we had left the captured ponies. Seven of them belonged to the Shoshones, having been stolen by the Blackfeet. Five of them belonged to Kentuck's party, and there were two strange ones, which Moonhavy forced Williams and myself to accept. The shots had ceased from the east, so the chief sent the wounded men to the village, and the rest of us started over towards where we supposed our second party was. We discovered them clustered together near a spring. One Shoshone was dying, having been shot through both lungs, and three others were wounded. They had come in contact with nine Blackfeet, who had taken possession of a rocky knoll and made a breastwork on it. 
The two opposing forces had exchanged shots for some time without any apparent result, as Fearless Evans remarked. Council was held, and it was agreed to charge the knoll from two sides. Six Indians were left behind to cover the charge by continuous firing at the breastwork. With a yell and a rush, the knoll was charged, and a quietus was put on the nine Blackfeet in short order. Evans had his cheek split open with an arrow, and Ken Tuck received a slight wound in the left arm. Williams always earned a supply of court plaster, lint, and bandages for such emergencies, and soon fixed up the men. After dressing the Indians' wounds, we took two long poles and fastened one on each side of a gentle pony, lacing a pair of blankets to the poles. On this, we put the dying Indian and set out for the village. The other wounded Indians rode ponies and, fool-like, were proud of their wounds. We reached the village at three o'clock and were met by half of the tribe, who wanted to ascertain the cause of our slow approach. And now there was a mixture of joy and sorrow blended together. The relatives of the dead man mourning and making the night hideous with dismal howls, others singing, yelling, and sending forth war whoops parading the village, and recounting in detail all the incidents pertaining to the fight and the extermination of those dogs of Blackfeet. The third party had not as yet returned, and going through the captured war sacks we found two white men's scalps, which Kentuck recognized as belonging to his partners. He buried them, saying, I am not acquainted with their relations, or I would send or take the scalps to them. Williams assisted me in cutting the arrow point out of my horse's shoulder, and he soon recovered, which highly pleased me. He and I were greatly attached to each other, and I used to feed him sugar every day. Dockett said that I gave him more sugar than the whole party used. Williams would answer, Let the boy alone. He will get over that in time. But I never did while I owned Runner. Sugar was then worth one dollar a pound. Scotty and Russell were with the third party, and Washaki, with all the headmen of the village, held a council with Williams and Perkins to talk over the situation. They came to the conclusion that there were no more Blackfeet in the country, and that the third party had come in contact with the Arapahoes, Crows, or Kalispells. Hey, we'll get back to the story in just a moment, but first, I gotta be honest with you. I'm doing this full-time now. The Wild West extravaganza is, as we speak, my job. And to tell you the truth... This is sort of a gamble. I'm gambling on myself, and I'm gambling on you. To make this work, and to continue bringing you true tales from the wild and woolly west, in an unfiltered and uncensored fashion, I'm going to need your support. And at this moment, the absolute best way you can support the Wild West extravaganza is by becoming a member of Into History. Into History is a podcast subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Not only will you get to listen to the Wild West Extravaganza ad-free, but you'll gain early access before anyone else. You'll also get bonus content. There is currently Wild West Extravaganza content on Into History that you cannot hear anywhere else, not even on Patreon. And there's a lot more to come. You'll also get to participate in the book club, the community forum, the upcoming live streaming events, and best of all, you won't have to hear my annoying-ass voice break into the middle of a story like I'm doing right now. And guess what? You also get everything I just mentioned from all the other shows in the Into History universe, offering the same perks. Come on, what are you waiting for? Go to IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. That's IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra to become a member today. I love you, and thank you very much for assisting me in helping to keep the Old West alive. Back to the show. 
Washaki finally decided to dispatch half of a dozen young men to scout the country as far as Owl Creek Mountains, a distance of 20 miles, and to return at once unless they discovered something which justified a further advance. The party was led by the chief's oldest son, a brave and energetic young warrior bearing a remarkable resemblance to his noted father. They left, leading their running horses so that in the case of an emergency they could either fight or run as circumstances warranted. In the afternoon of the next day, the third party was seen slowly approaching, and it was evident that it included some wounded. The Indian women who had husbands or lovers of the party became most anxious. Some of the Indians with spyglasses ran to the high ground to count their number, and soon made out 33, which was the full complement, including the six young scouts. On the arrival of the party in the village, it was found to contain six wounded, including Scotty and Russell. The former was shot under the left collarbone, and Russell had received a glancing shot in his scalp. A close call, as Perkins remarked. They had met a war party of 20 pagans on the summit of Owl Creek Mountains. Shots were exchanged with little damage, and the Shoshones finally charged the hill. It was during this charge that Scotty and Russell received their wounds. The pagans retreated, leaving two of their number. The Shoshones followed them about 20 miles, keeping up a run and fight, until the pagans got into a strong position, then they withdrew. On the way back, they lifted the hair of the three killed in the run and fight and the two killed on the hill. They also collected considerable plunder, including five good ponies, giving Scotty and Russell their share. The leading chiefs now held a council and decided that there were no more war parties in that section. All the Indians were jubilant and they went about saying that now all of their enemies would fear them. They calculated without their host, as the saying is. When what had taken place became known among the Blackfeet and the Pagans, they would be sure to hold a great council and court some plan whereby they could revenge themselves upon these dogs of Shoshones for the loss of their brave warriors. As I previously stated, Indians never consider themselves the aggressors. It is enough that they have lost warriors. That same day, we wound up our trade with the village and began to pack up. Williams induced Washaki to take all of our furs to Fort Bridger, as well as the six packs belonging to Kentuck's party. The Shoshones intended to go by the South Pass route, while we purposed to cross the mountains and follow down Green River, collecting furs and bear hides en route. Bear hides were still prime in the mountains and were valuable. On the second day, we parted company with our friends who urged us to stay. By this time, I was almost equal to the best sign talker in the village. Bear in mind that not all Indians are good sign talkers. Dunces among them are as common as among whites. Washaki would look at me quizzically and ask me with what tribe I had been raised. He could not or would not believe that this was my first experience among Indians. He would say to Williams that I could ride a horse as well as any of his young men and was their equal in shooting, while in fact I was their superior with both rifle and pistol thanks to my early training. I mystified and bewildered them by turning handsprings. My health was splendid and I was surcharged with energy. As we now had 11 in our party, we apprehended no more danger from war parties. But traders find trappers never relaxed in their vigilance in those days. He who did so often came to grief. If asked to compare the horsemanship of the Cheyennes and the Shoshones, I should say that they were equally skilled. Both can accomplish the difficult feat of retaining their seat on a horse while life remains, and they are like a cat, tenacious of life. When wounded, they retain their seat by winding a hair rope around the horse's body. Sometimes they put their legs under this rope, tight to the thighs, and sometimes bring the knees up so as to form an acute angle. The rope passing tight over the thighs and under the calf of the legs. 
They can lie on the side of a horse in action and, if wounded, will retain the seat until out of danger of enemies. I have heard some men claim that an Indian could lie on the side of a horse and shoot under its neck with a bow and arrow, without the use of pad, saddle, or rope. To my knowledge, such is not the case. I have many times been in action with mounted Indians and I have never seen it accomplished. An Indian dreads to use a rope when approaching trappers in a fortified position, or when brought to bay. Trappers will kill the horse first, and then they are sure to get the Indian. As hunters and shots, the Shoshones are superior to the Cheyennes, for the reason that they are more of a mounted Indian and hunt more small game. The domestic habits of Shoshones are commendable for Indians. They are clean, inclined to be proud, and think a great deal of their women and children. They like to see them well-dressed, as Indian dress goes. Many of them have more than one wife, but one of the wives is superior to the others, who do all the hard work, such as dressing robes, collecting fuel, and packing horses. Take them as a whole, the Shoshones are a contented and hospitable tribe, and no doubt, owing to Washaki's great influence, friends of the whites. We remained two days at Bull Lake and caught many beaver. I was now becoming very successful in trapping, and caught as many as any of the outfit. Williams taught me to skin, flesh, and stretch, in all of which I soon became proficient. Furs indifferently handled always bring a low price on the market. We next crossed the mountains to the west fork of the Green River and found furs in abundance. We also found black, brown, and silver-tipped bear, getting several fine hides. I went with Perkins on my first bear hunt. We succeeded in coming upon two black bears and getting within a 100 yards, without the bears scenting us. Perkins told me which one to aim at and we both fired at the same time. His bear made one forward jump and then rolled over. Mine fell forward, growling and trying to get up, but unable to do so. I put another shot in the bear's head to finish her. Of course, I felt very proud of my first bear, though in latter years I learned that it was easier to kill a bear than an antelope, provided you know where to shoot it. You are sure to get any animal shot in the shoulder blade, because they cannot travel. It has often been said that bears are the most ferocious animals in protecting their young. Such a statement is false as I have many times seen a she-bear run away from her young, which were picked up and carried away into captivity. The mountain lion, so much dreaded by many, is cowardly and is only dangerous when cornered. The great danger in bear hunting is when a wounded one gets into a thicket. In such instances, a good bear dog is needed. We shot two more bears that day, making a load for the pack horse. Perkins said to me after supper that night, now, young man, I'm going to give you a practical illustration of how to shoot not only bear, but all other four-legged animals. He pulled out one of the bears and took the hide off. Next, he spread out the legs and put the bear on its belly. He then cut the ribs from the backbone, cut down the flank, and pulled down the sides, so as to give me a view of the bear's internal organs. He then showed me where to shoot from any position that it was possible for the bear to be in, and told me particularly to note how low the vital parts lay. I profited by that lesson and never forgot or deviated from it. I would advise all persons to do likewise with their first bear. I would also advise them never to go into a thicket after a wounded bear, and not to hunt bears at all unless they have confidence in both their rifles and their own nerves. Many men are used up by wounded bears through their own ignorance. Our wounded men had by this time recovered sufficiently to take an active part in collecting furs. We caught a quantity of marten and a few fisher. The latter is classed as American sable, with a demand 20 times greater than the supply. We remained in this camp on the West Fork for six days, and then moved downstream about 25 miles and camped in a most beautiful place, 
an ideal spot for the poet to become inspired with the beauty and grandeur and to be awed by the lofty peaks which ascended above the clouds. At this camp, we made a great catch of bear, having piled up a lot of beaver carcasses to attract them. I became expert in bringing down bear with the first shot. The men were all fine shots. They could not be otherwise after such long experience. They often received great praise from people for their expertise with firearms, but no more than they merited, for an American mountaineer had no equal on the globe. It was necessary that they should be expert, for they carried their lives in their hands. At any moment, they were liable to come in contact with roving war parties, who were never known to fail to attack a trapping outfit if they dared. To be taken prisoner was to experience a death none desired. A slow fire is merciful beside other cruelties practiced by Indians. All mountain men were acquainted with these facts, and therefore it was impossible for an Indian to capture a scout or a trapper. And scouts were invariably trappers. They knew what would follow. I have often been asked why we exposed ourselves to such danger. My answer has always been that there was a charm in the life of a free mountaineer from which one cannot free himself after he has once fallen under its spell. Hey, real quick, if you don't mind, let me bend your ear for just a minute, then I'll let you get back to your life. Hopefully you're not too tired of hearing my voice just yet this week. I know yesterday we did the bonus episode with Her Half of History, then today this. Don't worry, the regularly scheduled program is still coming your way bright and early tomorrow morning. Brand spanking new episode of the Wild West Extravaganza. I just wanted to post this today because it's been a little bit since we've done one of these My 60 Years on the Plains installments. I actually recorded this several weeks ago, but up until now, it has only been available on Into History. Look, I'm just going to keep talking about Into History until you join. Do it. Do it now. Just kidding. Kind of. Uh, that's IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. Now, the next couple of chapters from My 60 Years on the Plains is already available right now as we speak on Into History, ad-free, and that is where I'll be releasing the rest of the book. Pretty much what I'm going to be doing is recording two to three chapters per week and uploading them onto Into History. Once we're done with My 60 Years, we're going to move on to the personal account of Wooden Leg, the Cheyenne warrior who fought in several well-known battles, including the Battle of Little Bighorn. Just another great first-hand story of someone who was there. You know, someone who lived through the era that we discuss here every week. And just like with my 60 years, Wooden Leg's going to give us some really great insight into the era. And when that's done, we'll move on to another first-hand account. We're just going to keep it going. And this is just some of the bonus content that's going to be published weekly on Into History, including all the other stuff ad-free. In other words, you won't have to listen to shit like this. And just one more thing, I promise. Uh, I haven't really been all that clear on how to listen to Into History on whatever device you normally use, so I want to try to rectify that real quick. Uh, in short, Into History is sort of like Patreon. It's a subscription model that unlocks extra or bonus content. Unfortunately, at this time, you cannot access this content via Spotify or YouTube. I'm hoping this will change very soon, especially with Spotify, but as of right this second, I don't know of a way to do it. You still do have plenty of options, though. When you log into Into History, you're going to see something that says subscriptions, okay? And when you click on that, it'll list all of the shows in the Into History universe, including the Wild West Extravaganza. You'll also see a tab to the left that says Player Preferences, okay? When you click on that, it'll give you the option to choose whatever device you're currently using. 
whether it be a laptop, an iPhone, Android phone, a Mac, whatever. You highlight your device, and then you'll see several icons showing what apps will allow you to listen to all of these feeds from into history. Chances are you listen to the Wild West extravaganza on your phone already, right? And I'm positive, whether you have an iPhone or an Android, your device already comes stocked with one of these integrated players. For instance, if you've got an iPhone, then you've also got the Apple Podcast app right there on your phone. And unlike Spotify, you can listen to all this Wild West extravaganza bonus content via Into History right there via Apple Podcasts. Likewise with Android, you should have Google Podcasts preloaded onto your phone. If you don't, maybe you've deleted it, you will get this list of other apps that are also compatible. Podcast Addict, A-D-D-I-C-T, is the one that I use. You've also got Podcast Republic, Pocket Casts. If you're on an iPhone, there's Castro, Overcast, and Podkicker. And there's a few more options. My apologies if this sounds overly complicated. Uh, it shouldn't be this hard, I know. And I know it can be a little overwhelming if you're new to all of this. But please, if you're having any technical difficulties, definitely reach out to me. Let me know, and we'll get you all set up. Likewise for the Discord channel, if you want to join in on the discussions, or even just the book club. If you want to join into history and you're having problems accessing any of these features, please hit me up. All right, I'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. Till tomorrow, adios. Spread out the legs. <laughs>